As students march for stricter gun laws, schools continue to prepare for the worst. I'm Kimberly Adams, in for Lizzie O'Leary. And this is Marketplace Weekend, where the economy meets real life. This week, we'll look at the grim economies developing in response to mass shootings. And as Washington wraps up the spending plan for the government, we have a look at how women in the gig economy plan for their own futures. But really, there's only one place we can start this week. We have a basic responsibility to protect people's data. And if we can't do that, then then we don't deserve to have the opportunity to serve people. That's Facebook CEO Mark Zuckerberg saying mea culpa during an interview with CNN on Wednesday. The problem? The misuse of Facebook user data by Cambridge Analytica. The social media network has over 2 billion monthly active users worldwide, but it's not all sharing baby pictures and relationship status updates. Businesses of all sizes use Facebook for marketing purposes, like J.T. Santanzi, the owner of Off-Kilter Kilts in Pasadena. California. In my business, we use Facebook and other social media sites to basically keep in touch with our customers. It's a daily back and forth that we get to have. We're a small business, so we don't, and we're kind of a niche business, so we don't have a lot of people, uh, you know, every day coming in, walking by, that kind of stuff. We we have to rely on keeping our customers close, and social media is the is the the way we we get that done. When I saw the the Facebook data breach, or not even a data breach, but more of more with the, uh, the this is exactly how we meant it to be used, my first reaction actually was I'm concerned that a number of people are going to drop off and the the platform is going to become less useful. I maintain a business account, and all of the information on that account is things I want to be out there. I want people to know about, and so I that specifically doesn't concern me about Facebook. But um, you know, I, there, there needs to be people there for me to actually reach. I'm constantly looking now for what's going to be the heir to Facebook, like as Facebook was the heir to MySpace, and how, particularly, how am I going to reach the you know the people who are, who are coming up in 18 to 25 right now who are already stepping away from Facebook, and and how do I get my message out to them without uh, you know without alienating the people who are on Facebook? I couldn't even contemplate taking my business off of Facebook at the moment. It's probably close to about a fifth of my business overall between people who use it to find me in the first place and then people who use it to you know, make their second or third purchase. I'd say, yeah, somewhere, somewhere around 20, 25% of my business. When it comes to advertising and, and getting the message out specifically, social media is the only thing that a lot of small businesses have access to. The social media, even though it's their algorithms make it difficult for us to reach the people we're specifically targeting, we still reach more people than we would through anything else that we can uh, actually afford. Sintanzi's not ready to cut the cord on Facebook. And really, as a business owner, is it feasible? Let's bring in Karen North. She's a clinical professor of communication at the University of Southern California. Good to have you with us. Thanks for having me. So how important is Facebook to businesses today? I mean, you know, traditionally over the past few years, Facebook for a lot of businesses has been a really essential tool to get the word out to customers and to raise awareness about their business. But, you know, times are changing a bit now and people are starting to be wary of the time and money they're spending on Facebook. 
So before we get into some of that wariness and the concerns of business, what does it really take nowadays to build a brand on social media? To build a brand on social media, people these days have to be smart because the audience has now found little homes around the internet and places to hang out. And now now the uh, smart businesses have to find a way to reach people where they are. And let me just say that it used to be that people would go for information to one or two sources. And now what's happening is that people expect information to come to them. And Facebook was the first really to allow brands and businesses to contact people and to give them a heads up about products and services while they were, you know, sort of enjoying their social world on Facebook. But Facebook has clamped down on that for financial reasons, and they're now making people pay for that kind of, you know, visibility. And it's sort of um, made it harder for people already to, you know, get the word out, which is why I think there's a bit of a pivot happening. Well, and for all the effort it can take to make social media work for businesses and the money that it costs them, what's the return on investment? If you do it well, there's a huge return. And I mean, this is, you know, it gets very complicated, but in order to be effective with social media, the companies need to be very, you know, strategic about how they put things on social media. They have to come up with the right content for the right platform. So Facebook would be different than Twitter, which would be different than Instagram, which would be different than Reddit or Tumblr. And then they have to figure out how to target the right people to receive those messages, even within the platforms. So it's very complicated when you start that way. But if you do it right, there's no better way to target an audience or to find the right people or the likely customers than digital and social media. Because what we can do with digital and social media platforms is, and this is why it's in the news right now, is that it's they're all collecting data all the time And they are allowing marketers and advertisers to find the right people by using the data to make sure that they have people with the right interests, the right demographics, the right passions, and the right needs, and serve up ads or messages to them so that they're likely to buy into what you're saying or to what you're selling. But businesses are operating on the assumption that this data is okay for them to have. What can businesses do to address valid customer concerns about the potential misuse of data? So there are two different things going on here. One is that what happened with, you know, for example, Cambridge Analytica is that they were allowed to collect data and take it to use themselves. And most businesses do not do that. In fact, very few do. They, and they got in as researchers, even though they're not really researchers. And then, but what most businesses do is they buy advertising or they buy access from Facebook. So Facebook retains the data. They just allow the businesses or the marketing people to select the kinds of people that they want to um, send their messages to. That's not giving anybody data. It's just allowing people to refine and define who they want to talk to. But you have this big consumer backlash happening now and in previous circumstances when people maybe recognize that Facebook had more information on them than they might be comfortable with. And consumers saying, you know what, we don't want all this information to be held by Facebook. If your marketing strategy is based on having access to that information, what does it mean for businesses when consumers say that's too much? Yeah. So, I mean, for a long time now, people have just sort of ignored the privacy 
situation and they just they they are willing to give up a ton of personal information in order to have a good engaging fun experience on Facebook and other other platforms it, it's moments like this that remind people that everything they do on Facebook and other digital platforms is just providing data about themselves so it's a really you know if, if you know for Facebook it's a really scary moment because their livelihood and their entire experience the entire viability of Facebook depends on data collection not just for use by businesses but for their own use Facebook takes the data that you provide and it curates an experience for you you know with the idea being that they want to curate an experience that will make you be excited and happy to be there to return to hang out there and to engage with your friends there and if without data then they couldn't specialize each person's experience and therefore it would be less engaging for people to be there but to make money they also sell that those insights to marketing people so that they could contact you about products and services and so that might make the facebook experience less desirable for users but it might also make it less appealing to businesses correct a reduction in the use of data will make it less engaging to be on Facebook and it will make it far less useful to spend money from the advertising or marketing budget to promote your business or your political policies. So then if you're a business and you've already built a following or leaned into marketing on a platform like Facebook, how hard is it then to pivot? Facebook has the advantage that you and the others do to some extent, but Facebook really has an advantage that you can target your audience. You could find the people you want to find, and Facebook's the best at that. So pivoting would mean changing your approach and finding new avenues or new channels to broadcast. And people are already doing that. I mean, Instagram is owned by Facebook, but Instagram right now is much more of a go-to place, you know, for um, for companies and for brands. And Pinterest, depending on what you have, you know, Pinterest has always been really successful and almost never talked about. You know, Twitter is great if you want to talk to influencers, but not if you want to talk to customers. So you can, but, but each one has its own personality. And for a business you have to figure out what kind of message to put on each platform because they're all a different type of conversation. So what does the future hold for brands on social media? I think that brands need to become much more strategic in the way that they approach their customers. They need to figure out where to go and how to talk to people. I mean, there have been some really interesting efforts using things like YouTube. Like, for example, Coca-Cola has a YouTube TV show that people love watching and it's you know it's a big promotion in a very subtle way for Coca-Cola and it's one of the go-to examples of good advertising that's engaging content. I think that we need to realize that advertising and marketing today for brands you, you know needs to be quality content as if you're creating entertainment for people and then positioning it wherever it best fits its audience and its style whether it's beautiful photographs on Instagram or engaging videos on YouTube, they're very clever ways to engage an audience these days. Karen North is a clinical professor of communication at the University of Southern California. Karen, thank you so much. Thanks for having me.
as survivors of last month's deadly school shooting in Florida call for stricter gun control policies, schools are sorting out ways to prepare themselves in case tragedy strikes in their own hallways and classrooms. That includes buying insurance, specifically insurance for an active shooter at school. Suzanne Barlin is the U.S. insurance correspondent for Reuters, and she wrote an article looking at this new market. Active shooter policies or active assailant policies have developed because of a pattern of violent events. We've had school shootings. We've had shootings in workplaces. We've had the Las Vegas shooting. We've also had incidents of bombings, such as the Manchester bombing at the Ariana Grande concert. We've had incidents in Europe of people driving trucks into crowds. So the insurance industry has responded with a product that helps with some of the expenses and liability concerns from those incidents. So if you're a school district and you're buying an active shooter insurance policy, what is covered by that policy? Liability is covered and that the policies vary. So we have liability that's covered and there's one insurer that I spoke to who has a policy that covers $250,000 in the event that a, a victim dies, it, it's payable to that person's family. And also to victims who survive but who are seriously injured. And in addition, it covers medical expenses. There is also a myriad of costs that school districts have to deal with, such as accountants, public relations firms, damage to the building, and possibly even reconstruction. And the liability portion of that is interesting. That's basically protecting the schools and the districts from being sued in the event of an active shooter situation. Well, school districts will invariably be sued in an active shooter situation. Yes. The question is whether they have to pay. There's a whole patchwork of rules and regulations for public schools, which are protected by state laws that either exclude them from having to pay or limit the amounts that they have to pay because they are public entities. Private schools, it could be much more serious. And are more schools signing up? And I mean, if this works like other insurance markets, the more people in it, the lower the price gets, right? That has been happening. One of the program managers that I spoke to told me that the premiums have come down about a third since his product, which is backed by the insurer XN, XL Catlin, introduced the product in, in 2016. You know, somebody listening to this, especially in light of these, these tragedies, m- might see this as just insurance companies trying to profit off of these tragedies. Is there any effort to sort of communicate around that issue? Well, insurance companies are in the business of taking on risks that exist all around us and finding ways through insurance coverage to respond to those risks. That's what they do, be it this unfortunate situation of a growing number of shootings in schools or 
whether somebody's home is in a wildfire area in California and the insurers have to step in and adjust their rates accordingly. It's it's the business of being in insurance. Insurance touches on just about everything that can be catastrophic and horrible around us and in our lives. If a school doesn't have active shooter insurance, who pays for all of these costs that are associated with a tragedy like what happened in the Parkland shooting? Just because a school doesn't have active shooter insurance doesn't exclude coverage. There are general liability policies in place in school districts, which may or may not cover some of the expenses that stem from these types of shootings. In many cases, however, the victims, especially the survivors who have medical expenses, are dealing with these medical expenses while their lawsuits against the school districts are tied up in court. And that's going on right now with a young man by the name of Anthony Borges, who is a survivor of the Parkland shooting. His lawyer has filed a notice to sue. His case hasn't even gotten started yet. And he's been in the hospital for over a month. He's had eight surgeries, and his family started a GoFundMe campaign to try to raise a million dollars toward his medical care. What inspired you to look into the market for school shooting insurance, and what was it like for you reporting the story? It's often challenging to have business conversations about tragedy, but that's also the role of the insurance reporter, is having to talk about really horrible things in business terms. It's it's an odd sense when you hang up when you hang out from these conversations that you have to have a conversation about a product that now needs to exist because children are being killed in schools. Suzanne Barlin is the U.S. insurance correspondent for Reuters. Thank you so much. Thank you, Kimberly. Earlier in the show, we talked about social media and business in light of revelations around the use of Facebook user data by Cambridge Analytica, which leads us to this. How is the Internet policed? Well, one way is regulations. So far, the Trump administration has dismantled 15 Obama-era regulations using a fast-track tool known as the Congressional Review Act. It gives Congress the power to review a new regulation for a window of 60 working days, and if they don't like it, erase it with limited debate. All it takes is a simple majority in both houses of Congress and the president's signature. Chrissy Clark, host of Marketplace's documentary podcast, The Uncertain Hour, has been looking at one of the rules that got erased. This guy, Cameron Camp, knows a lot about me. Over a course of several days, we collected about 30 million records of your interactions across the network. Whoa, 30 million is a lot. (laughs) 
The reason Camp had collected all these records on me is because I'd recruited him for an experiment to help me understand what information my internet company, my ISP, knows about me. Camp works at ESET, a cybersecurity firm, and for this simulation, he set up this little gadget. I'm the guy that built the creepy thing that tracked all our traffic. I hooked this creepy thing, actually called a packet sniffer, up to my computer. It was able to collect the same information that my internet provider collects, which is pretty much everything I do online that's not encrypted. It's like me standing digitally at your front door and monitoring everything that comes in or goes out. Camp and my internet company can see how I work. Probably you collaborate with a team, and I can tell to a high degree who you collaborated with. Camp and my internet company can see what I read, some of which is kind of personal. An article about baby bad breath, which <laughs> is... I'm, I'm just going to leave that one say, there. I'm embarrassed I'm, to say that, that my, baby, my baby does have bad breath. <laughs> I, I'm not here to judge. And then there's the stuff that's very, very personal. I found uh, an article on natural childbirth and some people that were pretty afraid of that on a site called Scary Mommy. You could see what I was looking at? Yeah, I'm reading the article right now. It says, enduring an unmedicated natural birth was one of the worst experiences of my life. And it says, traumatic, excruciating, horrific. It felt creepy to hear Camp tell me all these things he knew about my private online explorations. But it felt even weirder to realize that my internet company knows all this about me, too. There would be no other company in the world that would have this much information about you in that short a period of time, you and all your neighbors. And as things stand now, internet providers are allowed to aggregate, analyze, and make money based off all this stuff they know about me. It's valuable to companies that want to target ads and, theoretically, to companies that calculate credit scores or determine rates for car or health insurance. Now, I should say it's not just Internet providers that have access to our personal online data. Facebook, Google, Amazon, they also can and do make money off of what they know about us. But there's some differences. We choose to use those sites, and we use those sites for free. When it comes to Internet providers like AT&T, Comcast, or Verizon, we're paying them to use their services. And a lot of Americans live in places where there's only one Internet provider in town. You really have fewer and fewer effective choices, real choices. There's been enough concern around what Internet providers can do with our personal data that the FCC actually wrote a regulation finalized in the waning months of the Obama administration. It would have restricted what Internet providers could do with the sensitive data they have about you, require them to ask your permission explicitly before they shared any of it with other companies. But then, a few months into the Trump administration, before the regulation had fully gone into effect... I do rise today in support of SJ Res 34, which disapproves of the rules submitted by the Federal Communications Commission relating to protecting the privacy. The Republican led Congress passed and President Trump signed a bill that wiped the Internet privacy regulation off the books and shut down the possibility of any future regulation that's, quote, substantially similar. And the fast-track tool used to erase this regulation and 14 others in 2017 was the Congressional Review Act. The regulations that were eliminated were a diverse bunch, from this Internet privacy one to one that would have made it harder for certain people with mental disabilities to buy guns. 
But there's a common theme that lawmakers have brought up each time they used the CRA to quash one of these regulations, that they were doing it to stop regulatory overreach from a very specific group of people. Unelected bureaucrats at federal agencies... Far too much power to bureaucrats. ...overreaching, short-sighted, and misguided rules adopted by unelected bureaucrats. The Constitution is very clear. If you're going to pass a law, it needs to pass by Congress. That last voice is Don Nichols, a Republican senator for Oklahoma from 1981 to 2004. And in 1996, he was one of the lawmakers who created the CRA, along with Democratic Senator Harry Reid from Nevada. If people don't like the laws that Congress passes, they can change Congress. But what was happening, you had regulatory agencies that were passing very expensive, very controversial laws by regulation. And and I was offended by that. And so that was basically the genesis of the Congressional Review Act. It turns out that today, Nichols, the guy who helped invent the CRA, is a powerful lobbyist in D.C., And last year, some of the biggest companies in the world hired his firm to push Congress to use the deregulation tool that he made two decades ago. He said there were lots of regulations to target with it. It's like a mosquito in a nudist colony. Where where do you start? One of the things Nichols started with, that Internet privacy regulation. In the first half of 2017, AT&T and Comcast paid Nichols' firm $108,000 to lobby Congress. One of his big issues was pushing lawmakers to use the CRA to erase that regulation. Even though, according to polls, most Americans say they want more control over how their personal information is used by companies online. There were there were many folks who said, I want my privacy. I don't want these companies tracking my online behavior. Why get rid of that rule? Well, I, I think you had FCC saying, oh, wait a minute, we can do that by regulation. That was clearly something that should have been done by legislation. Whether you agreed with it or disagreed with it, that's something that Congress should deal with instead of unelected bureaucrats. But critics of the Congressional Review Act say unelected bureaucrats are a scapegoat and that the CRA really gets used when lawmakers are pressured by well-financed groups to get rid of a regulation that costs them. Alan Morrison is a law professor at George Washington University. The whole reason for giving these decisions to agencies to begin with was that the American people and the Congress have recognized that there is a problem that the marketplace won't solve and that Congress couldn't spend the time to get the answer right. And so they delegated the authority to the federal agencies to deal with that problem. Morrison says fast-track deregulation tools like the CRA give Congress and the president the power to shut down regulations without coming up with a solution to the problem they were trying to solve in the first place. I'm Chrissy Clark for Marketplace. To hear Chrissy Clark's story on that fundamental power struggle and the fascinating backstory of the CRA, check out the latest episode of our documentary podcast. It's called The Uncertain Hour. Are you concerned about your life online? What changes, if any, are you making? Send us your thoughts, email weekend at marketplace.org, or leave a message on our voicemail. 1-800-648-5114. We like to hear what you have to say about what you hear on the show and stories you'd like us to cover. Last week, we aired a piece about the impact of the Trump administration's tariffs on the steel industry. 
I think when the, the tariffs came out, it was probably a, a good idea. I'm sure the steel industry needs some protection, but there's some unintended consequences for companies such as us that have competition that make imports. And on the U.S. side, our cost for domestic steel is going to increase because of these tariffs. As the import steel um, goes up in cost, so does the domestic steel. So price of your keg's going to go up? Yes. That was Paul Zacker, CEO of the American Keg Company, chatting with Lizzie O'Leary. This piece caused quite the conversation on the Marketplace Facebook page, so here's some of our team recreating a bit. Greg Wright chimed in. Yes, we need to look at finished goods like the keg, etc. Support American workers. I am a printer, and my customers can buy Chinese products for less. But if I were to try and sell into China, my import gets a 20% tariff. Keen Wong added, Protectionism will have a ruinous effect on many individuals worldwide, particularly in the U.S. If you impose tariffs on imported kegs, what about the brewers who are competing against international competition who are using cheaper kegs? And if you impose tariffs on imported beer and cider, prices go up at bars and restaurants. They have to raise their prices. So who gets hurt? The American consumer. There's more to discuss on tariffs in the coming weeks. Add your thoughts to this or other stories you hear. You can email the show, we're weekend at marketplace.org, or leave a message on our voicemail line, 1-800-648-5114. And if you're still on social media, find us on Facebook, we're Marketplace Business News, and on Twitter, simply at Marketplace, or on Instagram, we're at Marketplace APM. There were a lot of numbers in the news this week. Interest rates, a spending bill, tariffs. But let's turn to something a bit more refreshing. So here's a look at this week's news by the numbers, the water edition, with Marketplace's Tony Wagner and Sarah Menendez. Thanks, Kimberly. Our first number is 2.1 billion. People in the world don't have safe drinking water at home, according to the UN. Of those, 263 million people travel over 30 minutes for access to water. And 159 million drink untreated water, which can lead to disease or death. 93. That's the percent of bottled water found to contain microplastics in a recent study from Orb Media. Scientists tested 11 popular brands, and the average bottle had more than 10,000 plastic particles per liter. And while microplastics can be found in tap water, it's usually in much lower concentrations. The effect of microplastics on human health haven't been studied much yet, but the World Health Organization has announced an upcoming review. 60,000. We're ending on the opposite side of the water spectrum here. That's how many dollars you'll have to shell out for the world's most expensive bottle of water. A bottle of Agua di Cristallo Tributo a Madigliani comes in a gold bottle, and it's sprinkled with 5 milligrams of 23-karat gold dust. To be fair, there's probably not a ton of microplastics in there. The second most expensive bottle is ungilded and sourced from an underwater spring off the coast of Hawaii. You'll find it in Japan, and the retail price is just over 400 bucks for 750 milliliters. (laughs) 
Now for a look at the gig economy, which isn't just Uber and Lyft drivers. It can include musicians and graphic designers working one-off jobs, people getting cleaning or delivery jobs via apps, or selling goods on sites like Etsy or eBay. A recent Marketplace Edison research poll found that only 39% of these workers are women. And while there are generally more men than women in the broader workforce, the disparity in the gig economy is even worse. So we gathered a group of women with different gig economy experiences to chat with us. Kelly Buttrick of Athens, Georgia, has been a voiceover actor for more than 15 years. Christine McCormick in Roanoke, Virginia, has been a digital marketing consultant for about a year and a half. And Melissa Ramirez of Queens, New York, has worked as a pet service provider for about three years. Welcome, all. Thank you. Hello. Thanks for having us here. Do you all consider yourselves gig workers or something else? This is Kelly. Absolutely. Every job you have is essentially the last one. I work from job to job to job to job. And I basically do anywhere from four to seven voiceover sessions a day. And so when they're done, you're working on trying to market yourself so that you can generate more sessions for the next day. What do you think are the biggest challenges in making sure that you have consistent work and that you are making enough money? Um, So this is Melissa from New York. I've always thought like, oh, I'm so lucky. Like every time I leave a job or something, I find another and it's like, oh, luck, luck, luck. But I, I don't think it has so much to do with luck as the effort you put in, the drive you have. Um, to make something happen. You know, when when you don't have a job or when you just left your job, you have this kind of drive inside of you to, like, find something else. Like, you need to pay the bills. You need to, like, do something with your life. This is Kelly from Athens. I agree that luck is really preparation meets opportunity. I have learned over the years that it's best to outsource those things that I'm not good at. For example, bookkeeping. I am awful with numbers. So I hired somebody to take care of that for me so that I could focus on the things that I am good at, which is relationship building and voicing. Christine, how does your home life affect how you think about working in in the gig economy and how you structure your work? My home life actually kind of dictates how I work and when I work. I have um, three growing, very busy girls, aged 9, 11, and 13, and I'm a single parent. And so I think that's what drew me to the gig economy is having the flexibility to be there for my children while still making enough money to, you know, pay the bills and and support our lifestyle. Do any of you have any particular ideas as to why it is you think women work fewer of these jobs in the gig economy than men do? So this is Melissa from New York. Women haven't really been pushed or maybe like taught that you know we can be our own bosses in a sense that we can create our own jobs and our own experiences and all of this stuff not all women have grown up that way but I feel like it's definitely a thing that's kind of been happening for many years do you all feel like you're making enough money this is Kelly in Athens and heck yes I don't mean that to sound in a braggy way, only that I have worked really, really hard. And it's nice to have that monetary recognition. Yeah. Um, So Melissa from New York, I kind of started from the bottom and raised my prices as I went, you know. 
when I look back, I'm like, whoa, did I really kind of work for that little? But it was to build up a clientele, to build up a business. I don't ever raise prices on my old clients. That's how I show them, like, I thank you so much for believing in me when I just started kind of thing. But also um, now, once I, you know, kind of gradually raise my prices, I see that people are still coming in because now I have this different reputation and people feel like they can trust me better and they understand that like I'm on a different level than somebody that's just starting that they don't know if they can trust. And how do you think about things like healthcare and retirement and planning for the future? Um, so I am actually going to say my age, shall I? Um, I'm 25. <laughs> so <laughs> I feel old, but I know I'm not. Um, so I'm actually still on my dad's insurance which is amazing right now but Mm -hmm. I have about six months to like get on my own insurance Uh, so that's terrifying but I'm okay with like not having insurance through my job because I feel like the flexibility and the fact that I can like control my schedule my pay like that's all a reason for me to feel okay about that. So this is Christine from Roanoke and as a Gen Xer. I'm not going to say my exact age, but I'm acutely aware that the old system of working for an employer and having benefits and then retiring and having a pension, I mean, I know that's gone away. I have insurance because of the Affordable Care Act. Just to check in, we're speaking with Kelly Buttrick of Athens, Georgia, a voiceover actor, Christine McCormick in Roanoke, Virginia, a digital marketing consultant, and Melissa Ramirez of Queens, New York, about working in the gig economy. In our poll, we found that women in general were more financially anxious than men and that gig economy workers were also more anxious than traditional workers. And I'm wondering if that matches up with what you all are experiencing and what you're hearing from other people who work jobs similar to yours. I understand, like, yes, you know, you never know when your next job is coming in a sense, but also there's there's also anxiety when um, you're working at a different job and you have deadlines and people are telling you what to do or sometimes people tell you what to do and you know that it's not right, but you feel like you have to do it because, you know, they're above you. I personally think that I have less anxiety now. I feel a lot more in control and comfortable. This is Kelly in Athens, and I just want to say I love Melissa's attitude about that. And and that is not an attitude that I had thought about or a a viewpoint that I thought about before is that maybe one of the reasons why I am less stressed out than my friends in corporate jobs is because I am in control. This is Christine in Roanoke. I think in all sectors, you have anxiety because job security is a thing of the past, no matter who you are and what you do. And so, like Kelly said, that we are more in control, I think, lessens the anxiety, but maybe it's a different type of anxiety as well. But I definitely feel it's less than somebody else looming over you and, you know, handing you a pink slip. Do you all want to remain in the gig economy? This is Kelly in Athens, and you're going to have to drag me out. (laughs) (laughs) I agree 100% with Kelly. This is Christine in Roanoke. I could never go back to a cubicle farm. I could never go back to somebody else controlling my schedule. This will be uh, the way I work until I'm done working. Uh, Melissa in New York. Um, I 
definitely see myself doing like like being more of a boss in the future. I guess I would love to be like a little higher up where I can let my money work for itself in a sense. Definitely would want to have like people working for me and like they're my gig economers. Or not sure if I'm saying that right, but. That works. We can make new terminology <laughs> since we're coming up with new terms. Do you all feel like our economy is set up to help you work in the way that you want to? I do not. And this is Christine from Roanoke. And this goes back to trying to navigate health care and trying to navigate benefits and trying to navigate retirement or when you're um, negotiating contracts as far as, you know, what your rights as a freelancer are. I, I don't think our economy is there. I don't think it's um, structured to um, protect gig workers. And I think I'm hoping that that changes and that gets easier to navigate. Do you all have any questions or advice for each other? This is Kelly, and um, all I can tell other women in the gig economy is make friends with other, as Melissa calls them, um, gig <laughs> economers, especially women gig economers, because we all get it. And being able to call upon a sister in the gig economy when you have questions about outsourcing or about insurance that you're getting or investing or if you're Melissa and you want to grow your business and have employees, then it's so nice to have mentors. And as you grow in your business, also look behind you and look for those people new to the gig economy. Look for those women who are just entering and have the deer in the headlights look and reach out and help them as your sisters ahead of you have helped you along the way. Thanks so much to Kelly Buttrick of Athens, Georgia, Christine McCormick of Roanoke, Virginia, and Melissa Ramirez of Queens, New York. Thanks, ladies. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. We're taking you now from the gig economy to a particularly cool gig. It's the latest in our occasional series, How to Be a Blank. This time, it's How to Be a Lighting Designer. My name's Steve Lieberman, and I own a company called SJ Lighting, and we specialize in production design for music festivals, stage design, and nightclub design. Being a lighting designer means being a CAD draftsman, a lighting designer, a video designer, production designer, a network specialist, and a lighting programmer and software engineer. It, it kind of encompasses a little bit of everything. So it's you almost have to be like the renaissance man of the production world in order to fill the, the needs of these job requirements. We've done everything from rock and roll. Years ago, I programmed Jay-Z's Black Album Tour. I programmed for Green Day. Nora Jones, large format like Grammy events and the Governor's Ball and things like that. But for the most part, I've always found myself going back to things that were music related. And I've always been an electronic dance music fan. So I've worked in nightclubs since 1987 was my first job in a club and have never left that environment. So here I am still doing nightclubs and what back then we called raves, which are now music festivals. Coachella, Electric Daisy Carnival, Lollapalooza, you know, all of those brands. I've been doing those for years. 
I laugh because I always say that I got my job by capitalizing on bad decisions. I went to college, got a degree, and then decided to go take a job that paid 20 grand a year instead. My first job, I worked for a, a company in New York City that built nightclubs and did special events. I did start doing light operation in nightclubs, so Webster Hall, Expo, The Mirage, and that slowly grew into something else. I decided I wanted to be more of a designer and not just work inside a venue, so started saying no to those jobs and really looking hard to figure out how to design venues and to design shows. Designing shows takes a lot of pre-preparation work. So you have to have a broad understanding of the big picture from the site plan to obviously there's budget and fiscal responsibility and then artist riders who's performing in it, time constraints and available resources. So you have to know all of those things. Then on top of that, there is a very delicate balance between engineering and science and the artistic vision and the creative side of it. So being able to draw a pretty picture does not necessarily translate into something that can be built. And drawing a pretty picture that can that can be built in the United States doesn't necessarily mean it can be built in Brazil. So you have to understand where you're working and, and what's available to you. When you start doing that, that's how you develop the creative process. For me, I'll start, obviously it's, it's mental. So I'll start thinking about where I want to go and then it's, it's a sketchbook. And then from the sketchbook, it goes into the computer. And then from the computer, we start rendering and start modeling. And it's an ongoing process. I could tell you the skills that I have to be a lighting designer. Obsessive, compulsive, neurotic is a good start. You need uh, what, what I call the tudes. You need a good attitude. Uh, you need aptitude. So you need the skill set to do it, and you need fortitude. You have to really want to be there and be motivated to be involved. There is something very amazing, magical, like empowering when you're standing at a console and there's thousands and thousands of people in front of you, and you have control over that environment. Obviously, we're, we're not playing the music, but when you hit certain moments and the crowd lights up and hands go up in the air, it's electrifying. That was lighting designer Steve Lieberman, and that piece was produced by Eliza Mills. Do you want the backstory on a job that fascinates you? Tell us about it. We're weekend at marketplace.org. Coming up on the next Marketplace Weekend, we talk about the evolution of advertising and what this means for legacy brands. Plus, Allison Green from Ask a Manager is back, and since she's been a regular on the show, she's tackled all kinds of workplace issues, like the hidden challenges of finding a job. It's definitely true that hiring managers worry about hiring someone who might be overqualified. And what not to wear at work. Even if your office is business casual, you can't really wear shorts in a professional environment. This month, we're leaving the topic up to you. What questions do you have for Allison on life or issues at work? 
It's Ask a Manager, Ask Me Anything. Email weekend at marketplace.org. You can also record your questions and send us the voice memo or call us 1-800-648-5114. We'll take a listen and one of our team may contact you. And that's it for Marketplace Weekend. The show is produced this week by Eliza Mills and Peter Balanon-Rosen. Joanne Griffith is our executive producer, and Ben Tolliday is our engineer. Naren Rao composed our theme music. Evelyn LaRubia is Marketplace's executive editor. Deborah Clark is our senior vice president and general manager. And I'm Kimberly Adams. Thanks for listening. This is APM.